Good evening. If you would, turn with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is where we're going to find ourselves this evening. And we are uh, tonight, Lord willing, going to cover the entire seventh chapter, including the first verse of the eighth chapter. So we're going to move through a lot of material, uh, hopefully fairly quickly, so we can get through this and and get you uh, home so you can actually feed your children. But as we work through this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, like a lot of these wisdom books, contain a lot of application. Uh, a lot of times when we're, we're going through a message, the application piece is a piece that uh, is a little bit tougher to find or takes a little bit more time to, to dig into. But in this case, in the seventh chapter, we've got a lot of nuggets of application. So uh, my hope and my prayer is for you that you'll be able to take uh, one or several of these pieces, or if you're like me, you need all the application. And apparently I need every bit of it that I can possibly get. So we're going to begin uh, in verse 1. We'll cover these first four verses with the title of the message this evening, uh, Better Off Dead. So normally I try to steal a a title for a message from an 80s or 90s rock ballad, but instead I went with a 1984 uh, John Cusack film. So there you go. You're welcome. Now you're glad you came out tonight already. So let's begin in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, verse 1, where we read from the pen of Solomon, A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth." So to begin, we get the start of this upbeat message, right? That it's better for us to actually be dead than it is to be alive. So uh, what we're really reading here, if you want to flip back to me, though, with, or with me to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 23, we see Paul delivering a similar message. And if you were here with us a couple Sundays ago, I covered this verse. But what Paul says in Philippians 1, verse 23, is he's talking about uh, his plight and this contemplation, is it better for me to live or to die? What he says in Philippians 1, 23, for I am hard-pressed between the two, that being life or death, that having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But then in verse 24, he says, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So what he's really saying is, between these two things, I'm picking death every time. So the message here to begin with is, for us as Christians, this is actually a true statement. It it is and it should be better for us to die than to live. And that's a question that uh, is still hard for us to wrap our minds around. But on the positive side of things, as we look at the challenges of our life, we've heard it said in here before too, that if you are a believer of Jesus in here tonight, you understand that this is the closest to hell you will ever get. As you sit right here with whatever you got going on, this is as close to hell as you ever have to worry about. Now on the flip side, if you're in here and you don't believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're not sure where you're going to go for eternity, this is the closest to heaven you're ever going to get. And uh, I think it's, it's pretty apropos to say that if this is heaven, this is one hell of a heaven, right? This is not what we're bargaining for. So that's really the point that Solomon's trying to make right off the bat. Now in verse 2, what he's saying is uh, it's better to be uh, at a funeral than uh, 
hanging out and laughing. So he says here that it's better to go to the house of mourning than a house of feasting. So it's better to be at a funeral home than it is at Culver's. Because that is the end of all men, and, and people will take things to heart. So the fact of the matter is, you will probably never get people being more real with you or with one another than when they're at a funeral home, than when they're actually contemplating the end of all things. So it's really easy to gloss over uh, you know, how life is going when you're eating a concrete mixer. It's hard to even be upset if you're eating a concrete mixer. I don't know about you, but you're not going to get any real conversation most of the time, at least not uh, contemplative and thinking about where things are going to be at the end when this is all wrapped up. And so the last point I put up on this slide is the fact remains that tragedy actually has a way of drawing us all closer together. So if you think about personal tragedy or even national tragedy, we're coming up on 9-11 here in another week. And in my lifetime, I can't remember another uh, moment in our nation's history where I felt more connected as a, as a group, as a whole, than at that point, right? And I don't know if any of you can pull that back up into your memory quickly, but boy, to just be you know, bonded together as a people when you see that kind of tragedy taking place and that, and that disaster. And that's really uh, where Solomon is going with this, is, is he says that sorrow is better than laughter, uh, in this point. He's not, he didn't have Culver's back then, so that's really what it boils down to. He had no idea how good frozen custard was. All right, so let's move on then to this next section as we look at wisdom over folly. So pick up with me in verse 5 of chapter 7. It is better to hear the rebuke of, a wise man, of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So in verse 5, what we see here is it's better to hear the rebuke of, of the wise than the song of fools. What he's really talking about is the yes man. Anybody ever work with the yes man or yes woman, right? That person that follows the boss around agreeing with everything they say. So is there really any value in that person, right? They're, all they're doing is echoing what they're hearing from the, oh, that's the greatest idea I've ever heard. But at the end of the day, and I've shared with you before, my former boss, the CEO of Rule King, said no one ever improved from a compliment. Now that's harsh, it was hard for me to take, but the fact of the matter is there's a lot of truth in that, that you can pay me all the compliments you want, and, and in my mind, I might actually start to believe some of the things you're saying about me, but if you give me a rebuke, even a gentle rebuke, and I'm uh, contemplative enough to think about it, there can be a ton of personal growth and improvement. And the next verse really ties in with this when he talks about the crackling of thorns under a pot the word in Hebrew is seer uh, for both, that's the root word for both thorns and the pot. So really what he's saying, it's like an echo chamber, right? So there's, there's no point in it. You're just, it's the same thing, just churning over and over again. There's no point to that. It's a play on words that Solomon is using. In verse 7, he says, surely, the oppression, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. So oppression or depression or pressure, if you want to even bring all these things in together, 
have this way of making it hard for us to reason. If you have ever been in a spot where you've dealt with long seasons of depression or oppression, uh, struggle, what you find is it's hard to even be able to make out a reasonable thought at some point in time. Or if you're dealing with someone who is, deal- who is having a long season of depression, you'll find that at some point in time they begin to think that everybody else has the problem. It's not them. It's got to be everybody else. The whole world is messed up. It can't possibly be me. And that's what he's saying here is that oppression has this way of, of uh, causing us to not be able to reason. But then to end this piece, he says, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And that one hurts right there. I don't know about you, but my first reaction, especially to the rebuking part I was talking about earlier, is usually anger. It ticks me off. I don't want to hear the rebuke. I want the praise. Heap on the good stuff. Right? Keep all that bad away. But what he's trying to convey is it's better for us to be patient than it is to be angry. That's, that's kind of the obvious of all things. But turn with me, if you would, back to James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, verse 10, uh, in this section, James is talking about what the prophets had to go through. And in chapter 5, verse 10, he says, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. For you have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. So if we're in a spot where we can realize that a spirit of patience is really a thing that, that we can draw on, that we can pull from, and we can begin to see the end of the thing. So in the story in the life of Job, you remember that he has lost everything. He lost his family, he lost his wealth, he lost uh, his own health. Everything had been stripped away. And yet the piece that Job didn't have as he was writing in the book is he didn't actually know the end of the book of Job. Nobody bothered to tell Job how the whole thing wrapped up. But for us, the benefit we have is we can go all the way to the end and see that he got double everything back. And that's what the scripture is saying here, is that you've heard of Job's perseverance. While he was in the middle of this oppression, he still had perseverance. And at the end, we see that the Lord has been compassionate and merciful. And so by seeing that, we know that no matter what position we're in in life, no matter what thing we're struggling with, through these prophets, through these stories, through this word of God that we hold in our hands, we know at the end the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You can take heart in that. That no matter what we're going through, this is where it's going to end up. And what you didn't realize is that from the book of James, some 2,000 years later, another prophet some of you may be familiar with, one named Axel Rose, said this, No sugar, take it slow, it'll work itself out fine. All we need is just a little patience. And you have to sway back and forth when you do that, too. You guys can work on that at home, the swaying piece. So James, that's another thing you can learn from tonight, that James and Axel Rose actually have a lot in common. All right, let's pick back up and move from Axel and Guns N' Roses to Bruce Springsteen. 
chapter 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. For consider the work of God, for who can make straight that he excuse me, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, surely God has appointed to the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. So to begin with, in verses 10 through 12, what Solomon is talking about is don't reflect and spend a bunch of time on the glory days. Now, you may believe that the, you know, the movies were better, that the food was better, that the music was better. Actually, the music was better. I just proved it right there. But you may believe all these. Listen, kids, stop it. But what Solomon can go back to in history is, because Israel does have such a rich history, is he's, he's thinking back to the glory days of Israel. And the fact of the matter is, the spot he's in really as a nation, this is the glory days of Israel. He's at the tail end of it. But going back to the time of his father, King David, that's really the peak of Israel as a nation. They never had more property than they did when Solomon ruled and reigned. Uh, shortly after Solomon's rule, the nation was split into pieces by his son Rehoboam through his fault. So, but even in looking back to the glory days, if you were to turn to 2 Samuel 11 through 12, and I'll just paraphrase the story, this is the one most of you are familiar with, and it, and it ties directly to Solomon, his, how did his mom and dad meet? His mother was none other than Bathsheba, who his father saw while she was bathing on a rooftop and sent his servants down to bring her to him, where he slept with her, he impregnated her, and then had to turn around and uh, essentially kill her husband by putting Uriah the Hittite on the front lines of battle. So all this glory days, really, the, the way it all comes back to us is uh, it wasn't all that glorious. <laughs> I mean, it was full of a lot of uh, murder and adultery and strife. And in fact... Uh, as all this is taking place, uh, and David believes he's essentially uh, got out of all of his, he's covered up this whole adulterous relationship with Bathsheba, Nathaniel the prophet comes up to him and he says, uh, Sir, there is a man in your kingdom, a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man has many things and many flock, and the poor man he is his neighbor and he only has one little lamb. And this lamb is like a pet to him, this beautiful little pet, and the kids love the lamb, and, and, and the whole family does. And the rich man is throwing a party, and he decides that rather than taking one of his lambs and cutting it up for his friends and having a big barbecue, instead he steals the, the poor man's lamb, and he murders it, and he serves it up to all of his friends. And David is so incensed, so upset, that he says, this man will surely die and pay back fourfold. Like he's so upset at this very action that the law actually said that the man was to pay back fourfold. It never said that he was to die. And I think of another a tremendous 1980s movie, and that's The Three Amigos. 
Anybody else familiar with that? So in, in that movie, what makes me think of this is as El Guapo has captured the three amigos, stick with me here, as he's captured the three amigos, he, he asks his other gringos, what should we do with these guys? And one of them raises their hands and he says, I think we should kill them. And then another guy, they all cheer. And another gringo raises his hand and he says, I think we should shoot them and then we kill them. And they all cheer. And then El Guapo says, no, 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 gringos. First we shoot them and then we hang them and then we kill them. Right? That's David in this instant. It's not good enough just to, just to make him pay back fourfold. I want him to pay back fourfold and to kill him. All that until he realizes that the rich man was in fact him. <laughs> then the story changes. And so what we learn is how much worse does someone else's, does my sin look on somebody else? Looks pretty bad. David, of course, is repentant and upset, but what takes place is a, a complete divide in his household at that point in time. So the Lord uh, promises him that forever the sword will remain in your house. So remember that story as we come back to the glory days of Israel here in just a few minutes. But in verses 13 and 14, we see that uh, in the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider, surely God has appointed one as well as the other, so that man can find nothing that will come after him. So the question really in verses 13 and 14 is, can we rejoice in both our wins and our losses? I don't know about you, but it's really easy for me to throw my hands up in the air in victory whenever I am doing well. But boy, that's a difficult thing to pull off whenever everything's caving down around you. That's a hard thing. And then to look and see the, the wicked around that seem to prosper. In verse 15, it says, and, and there's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Like how, Lord, can all this make sense? But what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 45, is that he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So there's a just farmer, and he gets rain just as the unjust farmer next to him gets rain. And the thing that I think of whenever I read this, and, and I'm all incensed and I'm upset about whatever injustice is taking place, is how much time did I spend being the unjust, unrighteous farmer, and the Lord still rained on me? <laughs> then all of a sudden, I'm all for mercy, right? So if it's not for God's long-suffering, if it's not for his faithfulness, if it's not for him looking upon both the just and the unjust and reigning on both and prospering both for long periods of time, then what about those of us that are sinners? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm in trouble. So praise the Lord that he's like this. Thank you, Lord, that you prosper both the good and the bad. Because but by the grace of God, there we go. <clears throat> so then moving on to verse 16, and we look at everything in moderation. In verse 16, do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. <clears throat> so this verse has been uh, often interpre interpreted 
to mean uh, everything in moderation, that even good and bad in moderation, in fact, you don't want to be too good. You have to be really careful not to do too many good things. And what the Greeks would call this is the golden mean instead of the golden rule. You want to hit that average where you've got just enough good to have a little more good than bad, but not too much because, you know, according to this, why should you destroy yourself? Why be too good? But the issue with that is that leaves us in a spot where we're lukewarm. And if you were to look at how Jesus addresses this idea of being lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16, as he's speaking to the church of Laodicea, he says, if you were either hot or cold, I could deal with you. But because you're lukewarm, I'm going to vomit you out. That's not a great way for Jesus to look upon your situation. So in fact, if we looked at a, maybe a better interpretation, you can jot this down in your Bible. Do not be overly righteous. You could write self-righteous. Do not be overly wicked. I'm sorry. Uh, excuse me. <clears throat> Do not be overly wise, I believe is the other thing that it says here. Do, yeah, I'm sorry. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. You could, you could think of this as thinking of yourself as wise. So the point really here is don't think of yourself too highly. Otherwise, you might destroy yourself. Don't think of yourself as wiser than you actually are. We can get this in our head that we're the smartest person in the room, and if you're in that spot, I can assure you there's somebody else smarter than you in the room. And in fact, uh, when we think about this from a, our relationship with God, Isaiah 64, 6 says that even on our best day, the absolute best I can do, my righteousness is filthy rags. It doesn't match up and it doesn't stack up. <clears throat> and I put this up on the screen. Did you ever notice that the most wise person is also the most humble? So spend some time talking to people and getting to know them. The wisest people you'll come across will also end up being the most humble people. And the quote on the screen from Spurgeon is, The greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. Looking to ourselves for salvation is going to end things very poorly for us. So if we flip the switch and say, okay, if we don't want to be balanced, if we're not looking to just live and do everything in moderation, then we're looking to be unbalanced. And some unbalanced characters I'd like to point you to in the Bible would look like Elijah, Elisha, the Apostle Paul, perhaps even Jesus, whose own family thought that he'd gone a little crazy. He'd gone a little insane. Right? Listen, you're being way too out there. This teaching doesn't make sense. You're completely unbalanced. I think an unbalanced life is probably more what we're called to than we'd like to admit. Now in verse 19, as we look at blind eyes and deaf ears, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So if we stop there, before we finish this section, in verse 19, Solomon is putting a value on wisdom. He's saying wisdom is worth more than even ten rulers within your city. And in verse 20, he's saying that there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. You could tie this back to uh, 
Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And even as Solomon is dedicating the temple, it's important to point out that in 1 Kings 8.46, what he says there is not if we sin, but when we sin. So there's an understanding that everyone has sinned. But in verse 21, the part that uh, this is a little painful at times, it, it says, essentially, be careful if you're eavesdropping. Because if you're eavesdropping and worried about what everybody else is saying about you, you might not like what you hear. <laughs> because oftentimes what you're going to hear is not going to be a compliment. And in fact, we know this because oftentimes uh, I struggle with being complimentary behind other people's backs. So therefore, why would I not think that other people are not being complimentary, complimentary behind my back? So it cautions us that if we're talking about someone, how is that speech taking place behind closed doors? Are we building people up, not just to their face, but even behind their back? So it's something for us to, to think about. But be careful that you might hear your servant cursing you. In verse 23, we see, In all this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom, and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness and madness. And so this, you could see, is a parallel to Job. Solomon is saying, listen, I have applied myself throughout my life to, to become as wise as I can, to learn as much as I can, and yet what I've found is there's not enough resources out there for me to gain the wisdom that I think I need. There's no end to it. It gets back to this idea of vanity. It's hevel. And this ties uh, in parallel to Job 28. <clears throat> so if you turn to the left, to the 28th chapter of Job, and again, we talked about his story. He's in a spot where he's lost uh, everything near and dear to him. And in verse 12, as he's, as he's questioning, trying to understand, trying to get a grasp on this, he says in verse 12, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not in me. So everywhere I've turned, all over the land, all over the ocean, no matter where I go, I can't find wisdom. Where can it be found? Until he gets to verse 23, and this is his answer. He says, God understands its way, and he knows its place. For he looks at the ends of the earth, and he sees the whole heaven to establish a weight of the wind and a and an apportion the waters by measure when he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt you ever think of that that god has already planned out a path for each thunderbolt sorry to dive in there but i just think it's amazing and then he saw wisdom and declared it he prepared it indeed he searched it out and to man he said behold the fear of the lord that is wisdom and to depart from evil is understanding. So if you've been with us any time at all in Solomon's writings, you see this fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon writes, Solomon writes that to us in Proverbs. He writes that to us again in Ecclesiastes. And we see in Job, he comes to the same conclusion that the reverence, the respect of God, the understanding that he's got all this in control, even when I don't have any of this in control, and what part do I play in this? But to depart from evil. 
And departing from evil, what that will do is set us apart. That will remove us from what everyone else is doing. That will, I put up here on the screen, make us sanctified. So for us, not sanctimonious, we are looking to be sanctified, set apart with a purpose, to depart from evil. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Now then, moving on to the next section of chapter 7. As we look at the witchy woman, I went back to the 70s. For all you 70s rock fans, retired to the 80s references, there you go. And in verse 26, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So Solomon has, as we've looked at over these last few months, uh, a little bit of a problem with the ladies. Okay, If you look at 1 Kings 11.4, we see... He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. You could say he had a little bit of a thing. And what we also see, if we recall the story I just talked to you about, with the story of his mother and father, is this is not something new to his family. In fact, if he were to go back and look, his dad had a little bit of a lady problem too, right? And in the middle of all this, Solomon would have been a young boy as he, as he saw the uprising that happened within David's own house. So because of David's sin with Bathsheba and God saying, the sword will never depart from your house, he also said, one will rise up from within your house, referring to his son Absalom, who tried to overthrow his father, in fact, kicked him out of Jerusalem and used a guy named Ahithophel as his main counselor. Now, Ahithophel is an interesting guy because he was David's counselor, and in fact, David refers to him as having counsel that is likened to an oracle of God. So Ahithophel was a pretty smart guy. He knew a lot of things, and he gave great advice. And this is who Absalom had on his side. Now, the interesting thing about Ahithophel, he was the grandfather of a young lady in the Bible named Bathsheba, who's Solomon's mom. And you talk about a mixed up situation. Now all of a sudden you've got a grandfather who's trying to get back at the way his granddaughter was mistreated by the king. And you've got this entire mess on your hands. And really the reason I wanted to bring all that up is Solomon is lamenting the women of his past is he had an issue that he never addressed that he could have seen in his own father's life. So it, it makes me question... As I look at my life and I look at my children, what kind of things am I passing on to them? What kind of things have been passed on to me, red flags that I need to look at in my own life? I think it's a challenge to us as husbands and fathers and mothers and daughters is let's look at the things that our parents struggle with and let's address those things in our own life. And then beyond that, let's look at the things that we struggle with and how can I talk to my children about it? Now, I put a picture on the right-hand side of my son, Joel, the oldest of the twins, by three whole minutes. And as I was studying on Monday, I came out of my office to find him sitting here 
and he's in his study Bible, and he's preparing for a message. So that is pretty awesome. Now, I'm not going to share with you any photos of him throwing a fit. I'm not going to show you any photo, uh, photos of him uh, having an angry meltdown or him punching his brother in the face or uh, him not making his bed or him peeing off the back deck. None of those photos are you going to see up here on the screen. I am going to show you a photo of him reading his Bible and studying. But the fact of the matter is, as I, as I uh, walked around the corner and I saw this, I thought, man, how many times could he have seen me doing something I shouldn't have been? Just as easily as he saw me doing something that I should have been doing. And it, and it causes me to take a step back and, and wonder just what are they looking at? What are they taking from me? And what ways can I, instead of just allowing the sin to continue that I've seen in my own life, what ways can I caution them in their life? So... <clears throat> To move on to verse 29 as we wrap up this evening, it says, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I put up here on the screen that man was created neither sinful nor neutral, but upright. I think a lot of times we get this mixed up in our head, or maybe just I do, that I have this sin nature that I was created with. This is a sin nature I inherited from Adam, from the fall. This was not the original intention of creation. And in fact, in Genesis 1, 27 and 28, God blessed Adam and Eve. They were very good. Creation was very good. But then, by the time we get to the sixth chapter of Genesis, we see right before the flood that men were doing evil all the time. That everything they thought of was evil, everything that was taking place was evil. And in fact, what Jesus warns us is that in chapter 17 of Luke, verse 26, he says, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be before the Son of Man comes back again. That all those same things are going to come to pass. All these same all evil, all the time, and I don't know if you've looked around, but it's not looking really that good for us. So it's something for us to be mindful of, but to the point that I wanted to make is it's not how we were created. It's not what God intended. His intention for us was to be upright, and that's really the new creation that we're trying, that he's trying to create in each of us. All right. To end with tonight, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. So the question is, who is wise? Is Solomon wise? Well, if Solomon is wise, we can also read in Matthew 12, 42, that Jesus says, if you think Solomon was wise, you've got one even wiser, even greater than Solomon standing right here before you. So our model that we're looking for, we're looking to model ourselves after is none other than Jesus. And when it refers to our faces shining from wisdom, uh, in Exodus 34, verse 29, as Moses is coming down off Mount Sinai, and Mike mentioned this a little bit on Sunday, as he sees the glory of the Lord pass by him in the cleft of the rock, that that glory shines so much upon him that it actually made his face shine. It says in verse 29, Now it was so that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai that with the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hands when he came down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. 
So Moses was actually reflecting the glory of the Lord as he, as he had that light shining upon him from this moment. So to flip to a New Testament example of this, I'll turn to Acts chapter 6, verse 15, and this being the testimony or the message that Stephen delivers to the Sanhedrin. In verse 15 in particular, as Stephen is delivering this passionate address, as he's laying out the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, you all missed him. And he's delivering this before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council. It says in verse 15, And those who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. His appearance actually changed because the glory of the Lord had shined, had shone upon him. So for us, that's the spot we want to be in as Christians. That's the only way we're going to have a real impact as we go out in the world is to have the glory of the Lord shining upon us, not through anything we can create inside. We don't have the ability to illuminate from within us, right? We're not a lightning bug that can, that can create any kind of light on our own at all. We're more like the moon, right? If the moon doesn't have the sun shining upon it, it's just a big, dark, gray, ugly rock. But boy, when the sun shines upon it and you've got that big old full moon out there, it's pretty impressive, not as good as the real thing back here, but boy, it changes the complete appearance and the complexion of it. And that's what we're to be as Christians, right? We're to be a reflection of the Father. We're be, to be a reflection of the Son. And the only way to let that happen is to have His face shine upon us. So in Numbers 6.25, what we can read here is, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up your countenance and give you peace. So I pray that for you tonight. May the Lord have his face shine upon you as we go out of here this evening. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Ecclesiastes 7, Lord. Thank you for application through and through this book, Lord. Thank you for uh, messages that at least touch my heart as I think about you shining upon us. What a glorious thing that is and why you would even pick us to do that. I don't know, Lord, but I'm grateful. And I pray, Father, that you would not let us get in the way of the plans you have. I pray, Father, that you would allow us the ability to go out and put these things into place that we talked about the application into place when it comes to our families, Lord, that we'd understand just what it is that we pass down to our children, that we'd be able to see in them the things maybe that tripped us up at different points in time that, that we can come alongside and we can help protect and, and guard, but we can only do that if we've got your wisdom shining through us, that in me there is no good thing, in me there is no wisdom. I am not the smartest person in the room, not by a long shot. But Lord, with you by our sides, with you shining on us, then the wisdom comes out. Then we can have the faces of angels. You can change our countenance. So Lord, please do that work in us tonight. In Jesus' name.